I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. Welcome to a special Halloween episode. I love the Halloween ones. Yes, even though, let you into a little secret, it's actually the middle of August. That's when I'm thinking about Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're going to hear the horrifying tale of Richard Hun. (laughs) Is this like Attila the Hun? (laughs) No. It's spelled H-U-N-N-E, but I'm sure he spelt it different times every time he signed his name, so it doesn't really matter. Hun Hewn, it could have been named anything. Yes, it could, yeah. This started life as just a bog-standard cameo episode, but it got a bit longer. And then I thought, <laughs> with its subject matter, I thought it would make a good Halloween episode. Okay. But it's not about witches or ghosts, it's about priests and bishops and kings. Which is far more scary. Oh dear. <laughs> Executions. <laughs> well, Burning. I'm not going to put a proviso right at the beginning because it'd be a pity if people thought, oh, no, that's not for me and turned it off because it's an amazing story. Okay. An amazing story. But I will warn people there are a couple of moments where you might want to put your fingers in your ears and go la 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 la. Okay. Just for a few seconds. Not you. You can't do it. No, I can't do it. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll just be traumatised. It's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I will mention when something unpleasant is going to come, okay. come about. Because it is a couple of moments. Okay. I'm going to start with a description of another character in this story. Bishop Richard Fitzjames. Fitzjames. I wonder if that's the same for all of the Fitz. Because I had once Fitz, heard that Fitz's Fitz, son, isn't it? Yes, but they said Fitz James when it was an illegitimate son. That's why you have um, Fitzroy for Henry's illegitimate yeah. son, because that's son of the king. So I wonder if Fitz James is an illegitimate. Uh, I don't know that. <laughs> we won't let into that secret. Okay. At the time of the story, he was the Bishop of London. And this is from the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. And I read this after I'd done the rest of the episode. And I thought, what? Really? Okay. Because I read about Mr. Fitzjames in the story that I'm about to relate. And then went back to look up his backstory. And it didn't tally. I mean, yeah, I know it's it's the same person. It's just, it was unexpected. Okay. He was born in the parish of Bruton in Somerset in the 1430s or 40s. In your neighbourhood? Sort of the other side of Somerset, but we are getting to my neighbourhood, very much so. Nothing is known of him till he became a student at Oxford in 1459. He was elected Fellow of Merton College. He served the office of Proctor in the University of Oxford, then became Prebendary of... Taunton, because Taunton was actually the only town in the the country (laughs) at this time. (laughs) He was treasurer and prebendary of St. Paul's. In 1485, he became rector of Aller in Somerset, which probably doesn't mean anything to anybody, but no. if it weren't for a row of trees out there, I'd be able to see the church of Aller in Somerset oh, okay. from this window. That's yeah, cool. Very, very close. I keep waiting for you to say he became the arch sorcerer or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, ten years later, he became almoner to Henry the Seventh and was consecrated Bishop of Rochester by Cardinal Morton. He was one of the bishops appointed to be in the procession for receiving Princess Catherine of Aragon on her arrival in this country oh, in 1501. okay. So him and Dea Yes. Oh, goodness. <laughs> meeting her off the boat. 
then to attend the Archbishop of Canterbury on his celebration of the marriage of Prince Arthur. 1504, he was translated to Chichester and to London in the, on the 14th of March, 1506. So incredibly busy time. During his tenure of this see, he did much to the restoration and beautification of St. Paul's. And he lived until 15th of January, 1522, and was buried in the nave of his cathedral, a small chapel being erected over his tomb, which was destroyed by fire oh. in 1561. He seems to have been, a, this is a quote, he seems to have been a man of high character and greatly respected. So he did not like it when De Ayala said, hey, pass us a bit of that <laughs> sacramental wine. <laughs> and then punched him in the face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that was the, my reading of it in the dictionary biography. Yeah, he sounds lovely. Yeah. And boring. He sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> really does. It misses out all, all the really vital bits of his life. Oh, that make it interesting. Because I'm not disputing anything in this article, but there was more. Okay. Uh, I just took the representative bits of his life. He did an awful lot of stuff. But it was the last line. He seems to have been a man of high character and greatly respected. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can t you can tell me what you think of him at the end. So he paid for that biography. <laughs> <laughs> so on to Richard Hun. He was a merchant tailor from the parish of St. Margaret in London. And it appears that he was a man of high character and greatly respected, since even his detractors said he was, quote, a very honest person, unquote. Oh, that's high praise. Yeah. <laughs> for this time, it's very high praise. <laughs> yes. His honesty extended to the fact that he didn't try to hide his contempt for religious authority, which is going to get him into trouble. In March 1511, Hun's little son, Stephen, died. He was just five weeks old. Oh, God. Hmm. Well, a desperately distressing event, not made any easier by the rector then demanding Stephen's christening gown as payment for the funeral charge. <gasps> Holy cow, what a jerk! Well, apparently this was common practice. What? But I don't understand. Hun wasn't short of money, so I thought he could have paid with money. Yeah. But the rector, I don't know why the rector would only take the christening gown. Anyway, Hun said no. Yeah. And the rector at this point decided not to push it any further and let the matter drop. But it was noted. But in April the following year, the rector suddenly took his complaint about the christening dress to the Archbishop of Canterbury. So it's going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. <laughs> At one point it's going, yeah, it's all right, forget it. And next thing, <laughs> against the Archbishop of Canterbury. You kind of skipped several people in the middle that you could have gone to discuss it. Well, yeah, we don't know what brought this on, except that Han was a su suspected Lollard. So maybe oh. this was an excuse to, to get him. If you're new and you haven't listened to us before, Lollards are a form of Protestant movement, which is not very supported by the church, to put it mildly. No, they are definite heretics at this time. Yes, burned heretics. A, burn a burnable offence, yes. <laughs> Hun argued his case publicly, and presumably quite eloquently, since the rector became so infuriated with him that he forcibly turned him out of the church at an evensong service, accusing him of being excommunicated, oh which wasn't true. Oh my goodness! 
Oh, so he's a liar. The rector's a liar on top of everything else. I have to say, the church does not come out of this story well no. at any point. No. Gosh. First you're going after the christening gown of their poor child they just lost, and now you're saying he's excommunicated, and he's not. And he's not. You are a bad man. So... In 1513, Hun sued the rector for slander. Oh, good for him. Well, he was, he was worried about what these accusations would do to his business interests. Yes, because you're not allowed to do business with somebody who's excommunicated. No. So that's a very real concern. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure it was. And, you know, it doesn't do much for your social no. life either. <laughs> <laughs> but he went further. He not only demanded to know who the rector thought he was to demand christening gowns from grieving parents... But he also brought an action of primunire, if I'm pronouncing that right. And this was a 14th century law prohibiting foreign jurisdiction over the supremacy of the English monarch. And foreign jurisdiction, which is a real pain to say, included papal jurisdiction. Uh-oh. Really? Yes. I mean, this has gone... These things do seem to be leapfrogging because it's gone from a christening gown to... To the Pope. You know, down with the Pope. Han asked why the Pope had jurisdiction. Why have I put jurisdiction so many times in this? <laughs> authority. Han asked why the Pope had authority over English subjects. So, yeah, this is, this is a big leap. In October 1514, the church raided Han's home and seized prohibited books, particularly some by Wycliffe. Okay. Hun was arrested for heresy and imprisoned in the Lollard's Tower of St. Paul's. And I think we forget there was a... There was a prison in the church attached to St. Paul's. That's quite shocking, I think. But then you had church courts. Yes, you had church courts for clerical crimes. So I guess, yeah, where would they put them if they, but still, against a church (laughs) or with a church? That seems wrong. Put him next to the cemetery. (laughs) (laughs) Well,. Yeah, the cemetery would have been quite handy in the certain circumstances. Oh, God. On the 2nd of December, he was chained around the neck and taken to see Richard Fitzjames, Bishop of London, and, quote, a man of high character and greatly respected, unquote. So here he is standing chained in front of Fitzjames for interrogation. And I'm not sure what that means at this point. Probably nothing more than questioning. I hope. I hope. Hun conceded that he might have been inadvertently heretical. But he refused to plead guilty and he refused to name names. Hun didn't think Fitzjames had a leg to stand on, so he's pretty cocky about the whole thing. Okay. Didn't seem to be taking it that seriously. And this annoyed Fitzjames as much and possibly more than Hun's alleged heresy. Oh. Yeah. I think the bishop rather wanted Hun to quake before him and he wasn't. He was just saying, yeah. So now we're dealing with ego rather than an actual crime. I think there's a lot of ego in Fitzjames. Hun was sent back to his cell. On Monday the 4th of December, so just two days later, Hun was found dead in his cell, hanging from a silk belt. Where did he get a silk belt? Silk's expensive! Hmm. Well, that's another reason not to do this as a cameo episode, since he's dead by page two. (laughs) (laughs) When Fitzjames a man of high character and greatly respected, (laughs) heard about Han's death, 
He immediately accused him of committing suicide, which was a crime and a sin. Oh, jeez. Any credibility Han might have had would have been completely destroyed if he was accused of committing suicide. Yeah. And Fitzjames knew this. Fitzjames demanded that Han's body be put under his jurisdiction before the coroner could be summoned. So then nobody can look at the fact that it was a silk cord. And where did he get that silk cord? Yeah, I mean, in a way it's understandable. Han was in a church prison under the church court. He'd been interrogated by the bishop himself. This was church business. But why did Fitzjames, a man of high character and greatly respected, want to get the body away before the coroner could be called? What did they do to that body? Well... I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> they just painted his nails. It's okay. <laughs> Except that it's not standard practice. Unfortunately for Fitzjames, a man of high character and greatly respected, <laughs> the Lord Mayor of London got to hear about Hun's death and dispatched the very wonderful Thomas Barnwell, the coroner, to Lollard's Tower. And he really is the hero of the story. He says, wait a second. It's 20 feet yes. in the air. <laughs> How did he get up there? Why are his hands tied behind his back? <laughs> well, it's almost as if you're reading. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> he was closer than Fitzjames, who was able to get to Hun before the bishop could do anything about it. Okay. Barnwell summoned 24 jurymen from the surrounding parish, and here we see how the role of the jury was very different then from it, what it is now. Okay. They had to examine the body and the crime scene. Ugh interview witnesses and suspects and deliver the verdict on the cause of death. And if the cause was murder, they would have to indict the accused. Wow. So they're effectively doing the job of a, a the police, police the, law, the lawyers, yeah. and the judge. And it's a lot to ask from 24 men who've effectively just been picked off the street. And may or may not be able to read or think. Hmm. And we've learnt from, I think it was Amy Robshart, that the court case for her, that... The juryman could be as young as 12. Yes. The coroner led the inquest, but it was down to the jury to deliver the verdict. And they were amazing, this jury. Really? Yeah. They actually got educated people? I don't know. Don't know anything about them. I just know how they reacted to this whole situation. Okay. When they, along with Barnwell, went to Hun's cell, Barnwell wouldn't let them in. He told them to stand at the door and take in everything they could see. Which must have involved a fair amount of shuffling. There are 24 yeah. of them <laughs> crammed in this doorway. <laughs> Patch along a bit. The cell, although sparsely furnished, wasn't empty. There was a bed, but the rest of the room was taken up with hooks and chains and stocks. I'd always assumed there'd be cells for keeping the prisoners in and a separate cell for torturing Torture. them. Yeah, not mm. in, so you get to stare at them the entire yeah. time. Ugh. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's the same in any other, but in the bishop's prison, torture could be carried out from the comfort of the prisoner's own cell. Oh, God. Yeah. Hun's body was hanging from the ceiling by a belt of black silk tied around his neck. And it certainly looked as if Hun had killed himself. And it probably wouldn't have been the first suicide Barnwell would, would have come across in his role as coroner. Both Barnwell and his jurymen would have seen judicial hangings. So they would know oh. what to expect from a hanged body. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I guess it wouldn't be as traumatic since it's something you'd see on a regular basis. And they'd know what, what it looked like. Yes. The inquest report written by Barnwell still survives. 
And the coroners at the time weren't trained in medicine or indeed anything to do with their profession. I'm not sure how someone became a coroner. I'll do it. But it <laughs> just yeah. put up your hand from a crowd. I just thought maybe common sense, you know, they might think, well, you know, he's got his head screwed on. Oh, dear. What would Barnwell and his jurymen have been looking for in Hun's supposedly hanged body? A hanged person would have a bluish tinge to their face due to all the deoxygenated blood trapped in their heads. Yeah. Particular hemorrhaging. The blood around the eyes. I'm coming to that. <laughs> I watch a lot of forensic files. <laughs> Hans' face wasn't blue in the slightest. Oh. A hanged person would have a rash around the, their eyes due to ruptured capillaries, as you say. No rash was seen on Hun. Oh. A hanged person's eyes would have been staring and the mouth would have been open and the tongue protruding. Hun's eyes and mouth were closed. Staged. It was staged. A, a hanged person tended to void from one orifice or another. Yes. Hun hadn't been drooling. There was no sign of urine, feces or semen. All that could be seen was a bit of blood from Hun's nostrils. Oh. Apart from that, his body looked very clean. Almost scrubbed clean, one might say. Oh. A hanged person would look dishevelled. Their hair would be all over the place as they thrashed around trying to breathe. Not only did Hun not have a hair out of place, he still had his hat on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that's possible. (laughs) (laughs) The crime scene itself was suspect. How could Hun have tied himself to a hook with a silk belt? The only way he could reach the hook was by standing on something, and there wasn't anything to stand on. There was a stool, but it was on the bed. This sounds like that uh, thought game that they give you when you're a kid. Was there a puddle of water underneath him? Was he standing on a block of ice? (laughs) No, he wasn't. There wasn't, yeah, the stool was there, but it was on the bed. He'd have had to have jumped off the stool. Somehow, while he was hanging, picked the stool up with his feet and kicked it onto the bed or something. It doesn't seem likely anyway. No. Murder most foul. Barnwell then noticed that a wax candle about eight feet away from Hun's body had half melted. Hun surely couldn't have snuffed it out from where he'd hanged himself. And would he really have tried to hang himself in pitch dark? He'd have had to have needed to see what he was doing to tie the knot. and Yeah. Thirdly, a witness had mentioned a mulberry-coloured cloak in the cell where Hun's body was first found. That had disappeared. Whose was it and where had it gone? Hmm. Then they took down the body. As they did so, the silk belt came loose and fell to the ground. It wasn't actually tied to the hook. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it had been wrapped around and then held in place by one of those ominous-looking chains. So it would never have supported him? No, he'd have just slithered out of it and go crashing to the ground. The belt had been used as part of a pulley system to lift the body into place. Also, the loop of the belt was tied not like a noose that would tighten with the weight of the body. It had been knotted around the neck in such a way that he couldn't have got it over his head. Which didn't seem to me to be conclusive. If you don't know how to tie a noose, you'd probably just tie the thing to your neck and hope for the best, but... Because there is a special way to tie a noose, isn't there? I'm, see- I'm oh, yeah. remind- remembering the like the curled thread or how it's wrapped around one part of it. So, so it's it the rabbit comes out of the burrow and round the tree and yeah. back in the burrow. 
Oh my goodness. So you know exactly how to do it by a children's rhyme? Wow. (laughs) That's a little (laughs) disturbing. I think that's, I'm not sure that's a new section. Okay, good. (laughs) There were no ligature marks on the neck. But maybe they wouldn't be if you'd hanged yourself with a silk belt. Yes. Yet Han's neck was broken. Also... How how far do you have to drop to break your neck, though? Because isn't it... It's quite a drop, isn't it? Like six feet or something? I would have thought... I don't know how tall the cell was if it was tied to the ceiling. Yes, but you... But, like, the reason... They have hmm. calculations for exactly how far you need to drop the body in order to actually break the neck. And a few well, feet isn't I, it. I don't think it's it, and that's not how the neck was broken. Okay. Because also, there was a wound on Han's head that looked to have been caused by being hit by a blunt instrument. Ah. Or, or striking his head against the floor. And that wasn't usual in a hanging. No. There were ligature marks on the wrist. And that wasn't usual in a hanging. No, but all of these technically could have been from his torture prior. Could have been. Whatever Hun's guilt of the crime for which he was in prison, Bramwell was sure he was innocent of the crime of committing suicide. I agree. Bramwell then looked at the blood which had come out from Hun's nostrils. It seemed odd that the blood was only under his nose. There wasn't any on his mouth or chin, or on his clothes around his neck. But on his jacket below the breast, there was a lot of blood, and yet there was no wound there. That blood must have come from his nose. Yeah. How could it have got onto the jacket and yet not not got onto his chin? And it was quite quite a lot of blood. It must have been one hell of a nosebleed he'd had. No kidding. The only explanation was that someone had washed Han's face, set his clothes right, brushed his hair, and even put his hat on. Why? Why would you go to all that trouble? Barnwell then searched the floor around where Han had been hanging. There was no blood there. So he was killed elsewhere? There was quite a lot of blood in that dark corner over there, though. A lot ah. of blood. The jury, who, as I said, a brave and noble bunch, came to the conclusion that Han had been murdered. And now they had to discover who had done it. The list of suspects was quite small, since few people had access to Han's cell. So, suspect number one, Dr. Thomas Horsey, nicknamed Thomas Heresy. I'm not sure why. Oh, gosh. I, guess the, I, guess the, he, I don't think he was a heretic. I guess he tried heretics. He was Bishop Fitzjames Chancellor and custodian of Lollard's Tower. So Han was Dr. Horsey's prisoner. A weird event had taken place earlier. Dr. Horsey had fallen on his knees in front of Hun and begged forgiveness for all he had done to him and, which is more ominous, for all he was going to do to him. Oh. Please don't. Please just don't. Don't ask forgiveness. Just don't do it. Well, we read in the Malleus Maleficarum that torturers were told to pretend to their victim that they really didn't want to do this and it would be really very nice if the accused just pleaded guilty. Uh, and saved both the victim and the torture from any unnecessary unpleasantness. So maybe that was what was going on here? Uh. Suspect number two, John Spaulding. He was the keeper of the jail. He was alleged not to know a goose from a capon, so to speak. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But he was also said to be quite mouthy. 
He had the only set of keys to Hans' cell. He'd been acting suspiciously in the days leading up to the murder. A witness came forward to say how he'd met Spaulding and asked after Han, which shows that Han was already quite a celebrity in prison circles. Spaulding replied, quote, There is ordained for him so grievous penance that when men hear of it, they shall have great marvel thereof, unquote. Oh, okay. Which sounds quite a complicated sentence for a man who didn't know a goose for a cave. Yeah, a that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> um, it's quite the leap of logic. And well, perhaps it's a bit of transcription. I'm not sure. Suspect number three was a nasty piece of work called Charles Joseph. And he was a summoner, like Canterbury Tales. And summoners were no more popular in the early 16th century than they'd been in Chaucer's day. They deliver court summons, so you know, not particularly popular today either. Mm. He was a drinker and a womaniser, oh. which is Hi. not a nice combination. Yeah. He'd been seen at the prison a few hours before Han's body had been found. He was a thug. He was sort of rent-a-thug. If you want something, <laughs> something done, <laughs> you call Charles <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> okay. And this is not much of a whodunit, since Barnwell was sure that they'd all done it. And he kept a close eye on all of them. Horsey and Spaulding sensibly carried on their duties as if nothing untoward had happened. But Charles Joseph, having left the prison, went to the Bell Tavern to pick up his horse, which he'd told them to have saddled ready, and he rode to his home outside London. There he met his maid, Julianne Little, which goes to show that even paid thugs had servants in those days. <laughs> She could see that Joseph was agitated and she asked him what was wrong. Joseph replied, quote, Julianne, if thou wilt be sworn to keep my counsel, I will show you my mind, unquote. Julianne then swore on the Bible that she would never, ever, ever tell anyone. Ever. I will never tell a soul. So how do we know, Julianne, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Joseph confessed, quote, I've destroyed Richard Hunn, unquote. The maid asked how, and if you're squeamish, now is the time to stick your fingers in your ears. Okay. Quote, I put a wire up his nose, unquote. <gasps> oh my gosh, he turned him into a mummy. <laughs> well, a bit prematurely. Yes. Joseph told Julianne that he'd gladly give £100 if he could only take back what he'd done. So he's either a thug with a conscience or he's a thug with a justifiable fear of the hangman's noose. Yes, <laughs> hangman's noose. Barnwell and his jury wanted to talk to Joseph since they were convinced he was implicated in the murder. But he went on the run for two weeks. He sought sanctuary in the church of St Andrew in Good Easter in Essex. He was removed from the sanctuary, which seemed odd because he wasn't accused of treason. So... By right. By rights, he should have been able to maintain sanctuary. He should have been. He's a scapegoat. I don't think he did it. I think the bishop did it. We shall see. <laughs> I think what the bishop did was almost worse, but we shall come to that. He was taken to the Tower of London, where, unlike Hun, he did plead guilty and name names. And the names he named were Dr. Horsey and John Spaulding. What? All three of them had gone to Hun's cell. Hun was asleep. Dr. Horsey shouted, quote, seize the thief, unquote, which is an odd thing to shout. I mean, he wasn't a thief. Joseph said they all murdered him. 
And he's presumably making sure that he's going down, they're all going down. Oh my goodness. He didn't give any more details. He didn't mention the wire. Sorry, I should stick your fingers in here. It's going to be just the last bit. <laughs> Presumably because that would pinpoint him as the actual murderer. He also didn't explain how Han's neck got broken, but he did say yeah. that he and Spaulding had lifted up the body and Dr. Horsey had tied the belt to the hook. But still, it's an incomplete story, so I don't think he did it. I don't think any of them <laughs> did it. I think it was the bishop. The case of Richard Hunn became a cause celebre across the country and everyone had an opinion on it. Some openly stated that the church must be behind this. So there you are, you're openly stating that the church is behind it. Thomas More, on the other hand, defended the church and said that Hunn had committed suicide. Oh, Thomas! Yeah, I know, it's Thomas More. We don't like him, do we? Disappointed in you. John Fox, of Book of Martyrs fame, accused Bishop Fitzjames of ordering the killing. Because he obviously hadn't, hadn't heard that Fitzjames was a man of high character and greatly respected. <laughs> <laughs> this was in retaliation, Fox said, for the court cases that Hannah brought against the church. The one about, we, we don't need the Pope around here. Han was famous before his murder. Rather than being discreet and holding his beliefs in private, he'd taken the church to court and he'd refused to confess or give the names of the Lollards that they'd wanted. And the church knew that without the confession, they didn't have a case. And they needed to get that confession. Confession. Why? Why the confession? So far, they can make everything up anyway. It just looks better, doesn't it? Was the English church allowed to torture people? Yes. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Under canon law, they were, but it was restricted. There were things you could do and things you definitely couldn't. The church was allowed to torture people as long as they did not draw blood. What? I presume that's why the rack was so prevalent, because maximum pain, no blood loss. They were also not meant to cause permanent injury or to risk the death of the person they were torturing. Ooh. So they've screwed up on multiple places there. Yeah. You may think that this is, sounds quite nice benign laws, but they were not for the benefit of the victim. Because the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. They don't say, thou shalt not pull someone's arms out of their sockets. So the rules were to protect the souls of the clergy, not to protect the bodies of the prisoners. Oh my goodness. The whole story did come out in the end. On the night Hun was killed, the three men went to his cell, dragged him out of bed and tied his hands. Joseph was to do the actual torture, but he wasn't a torturer. He didn't really know what he was doing. Yes, of course. There are trained torturers. Yes. And again, if you're squeamish, get those fingers in your ears. Unless, you, unless you're driving, in which case just go la 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph was told to put the wire up Hun's nose. And this was a commonly used torture. Heat the wire in the candle flame, put it up the nose. It's incredibly painful, but it doesn't leave any marks. And I know it's incredibly painful because when I did when oh, I went the to the hospital test? had my first COVID test, oh. she rammed it up there. Yeah, and I was just like, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Get to my brain? Oh, that was brutal. Yeah. You know it hurts. Imagine it's hot as well. And now the new ones, you can just do the beginning of your nose. So I'm like, why did they have to go so far back? Oh, can you? I haven't done them for ages. It shouldn't leave any mark, but Han would have been thrashing about trying to get away from the wire. Right. Joseph put, push, 
Again, fingers and ears. Joseph pushed the wire too far, piercing Han's brain. How hard do you have to push to do that? I suppose if you've got someone thrashing about, here I'm, I'm imitating thrashing about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he wasn't doing waving his arms still, about like that. That has to go through a bone. Doesn't I would it? have thought so, but I suppose you've got quite a. Th- I don't know. Ugh. I'm not. Well, this would have caused the bleeding from both nostrils. Well, yeah. And Han <laughs> had bled from both nostrils because usually if you have a nosebleed, it's one, it's one nostril or the other. Or the other yeah. isn't it? Because I often have a nosebleed from my left nostril because I did something similar with a with a bramble many years ago. And it's bugged you ever since? <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> I would, I'd highly recommend not shoving a bramble up your nose. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of blood. So we can, we can only imagine the panic in that cell. Blood everywhere. Oh, God. Hun obviously dying. Oh, God. This was not how it was meant to go. Oh, God. Oh, God. Blasphemer! Blasphemer! (laughs) At some point, maybe to shut Han up, somebody hit him or pushed him to the ground and his neck was broken. They stepped on his neck. I don't know. Yeah. And now the three had no choice but to clean Han up as best they could and to hoist him up and make it look like suicide. But then why would he show up? Wait, wasn't one of them the coroner? No, the coroner is is the goodie. Brownwell. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, no, they're they're all working for the church, for for Bishop Fitzjames. Right, working in the prison, apart from Charles Joseph, who just seems to be a freelance summoner and thug, <laughs> but paid by the paid by the church. <laughs> oh goodness! If Fitzjames had got to the body before Barnwell, there wouldn't have been a problem. You just get rid of the body and you're done bish bash bosh yeah but now they were faced with lots of unnerving questions can't they point at the bishop and say he told us to do it well the bishop himself is beginning to panic (laughs) it was beginning to look as if barnwell and his jurymen were going to indict dr horsey spaulding and joseph how long it would be before he was openly accused of telling them to do it how long before he'd be required to answer questions and they might not realise that he was a man of high character and greatly respected. <laughs> Fitzjames was going to have to put a stop to the investigation, but what was he going to do? What would you do in Fitzjames's position? And I'd be very surprised if you come up with the same plan that he came up with. What would I do? Run. Well, you're the Bishop of London. You can't just run, really, can you? You trip over your cassock for a start. Ah. <laughs> Uh, I, I honestly don't know. I'm not good at covering my tracks if I've done something wrong. Usually I just go, I'm so sorry. I did this before anybody even notices. <laughs> That's not what Bishop Fitzjames does. <laughs> when I was 13 or 14, I we had just built a house. We put in this beautiful hardwood flooring and I dropped our iron point down into the wood. <laughs> Mm. Of course, it left a big dent. Dad came home and I'm like, I'm so sorry before he even got through the door. I am not good at keeping my mouth shut. That's by far the best policy. He just stood there stunned for a bit. And then he's like, it's okay. We can fill it with wood. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) So that's what I'd do if I was the bishop. Well, just yeah, whoever you should do. He's a man of he's greatly respected and a man of high standing. But no, that's not what he does. What does he do? What he does is to commandeer Hun's body. 
He didn't see why a little thing like death should get in the way of Hun's trial for heresy. All the fuss about the murder would soon be forgotten once Hun was found guilty of heresy. Because then he could be burnt to death. So the murder didn't matter. Okay. Well, we heard in the episode on relics that Henry VIII put Thomas Beckett on trial long after his death. Yes. But that was giving Beckett 30 days to perform a miracle. Beckett wasn't actually put in the dock. True. Fitz James was more literal than Henry VIII. 11th December. Hun's body was put on trial in the Lady Chapel of St. Paul's. I'm sorry, his actual body. They took His out... actual body. Ew. The judge was Bishop Fitzjames. Who better? He was a man of high character and greatly respected. <laughs> <laughs> his assistant was the Archbishop of York. One Thomas Woolsey. Really? Mm. Hello, Mr. Woolsey. We know how corrupt <laughs> you are. How much will this cost us? And the bishops of Durham and Lincoln. Presumably, Fitzjames had told the other bishops that the reputation of the church as a whole could hang on this trial, because I can't see how they'd be convinced to do it. The Lady Chapel was packed. Thomas More was there, probably making more snidey comments. And, of course, the body of Richard Hun. And this is the first, I'd like to think the last time they did this, because it's probably not at all legal in canon law to do this. Fortunately, it was December and cold, but it had been a week since Hun had died. He's smelly. And presumably the Lady Chapel got considerably warmer with all those live bodies oh, crammed no. together. Oh, no, and the it. candles and everything. Ew. Yeah. His face starts to slide off one side. <laughs> <laughs> the court was told how the search of the house had unearthed a Wycliffe Bible. And that would definitely have condemned Hun as a heretic. Yes. And yet Fitzjames had never mentioned this Bible before. There were other books there, but the Bible was being mentioned for the first time now at Hun's trial. Oh, convenient. Well, some went so far as to say that this wasn't true. Oh. Hmm. Hun, though, didn't deny it, so it must be true. Has, oh, just, <laughs> <laughs> He's dead. He's dead. <laughs> If you don't say you didn't do it, you did it. (laughs) Speak now or forever hold your peace. (laughs) And sit up straight. (laughs) Stop slouching. The court was then asked if anyone would speak for Hun. No one came forward. Of course not. Mm. You're going to die. The trial carried on for a week. Hun gently rotted. Uh, Uh... On the 16th of December, Hun's dead body was found guilty of heresy. And on the 20th of December, it was burnt at the stake. If Fitzjames thought that this would deflect interest from Hun's murder, he was very much mistaken. In fact, parading the body like that probably brought the subject more to the fore. Really? Oh. What, what kind of stupidity was this? This is epically not thought through very well. You want to keep something secret and sort of hush-hush, you don't parade it through the streets. I mean, everyone's going to be talking Was about there this. fanfare behind him playing trumpets and everything, but with an ominous tone? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Barnwell wasn't intimidated. That's the coroner, the, the wonderful hero. And he and his jurymen carried on their investigation. 
February 15, the inquest reached a verdict. Quote, we find by God and all our consciences that Richard Hun was murdered. Also, we acquit the said Richard Hun of his own death, unquote. And on top of that, Dr. Horsey, Spaulding and Joseph were indicted for murder. I would be so scared. Fitzjames was furious. Now he tried to block the legal proceedings. Well, I'd imagine, because if these guys get charged and accused... They got nothing to lose. Yeah, they're gonna say, see that man over there? (laughs) It was by his order. Mm. Well, Fitzjames wrote to Woolsey, describing the jurymen as false perjured caitiffs, unquote. And a caitiff was a cowardly person. Perkin used the same word to describe the people around Henry VII. Bray was a caitiff, I remember. I should bring back these words. Mm. Fitzjames asked that Horsey, Spaulding and Joseph's case might be tried before the council because he felt assured that a jury in London would condemn any clerk, quote, be he as innocent as able, as they were so maliciously set, in favorum hereticae pravitatis, unquote. And that's in favour of heretical corruption, which is saying, you put it before any jury, and they're all heretics anyway, <laughs> which is not... You get the impression that panic is sending yes. him off on the deep end. Yes. <laughs> Wolsey tried to use his position on the Privy Council to get the indictment com- stopped completely. Henry VIII's answer to this was to call a series of conferences to discuss the legal boundaries of the church courts. And I'm not sure that's what Fibbets, James and Wolsey had in mind. Mm. The church said that Hun was a convicted heretic who had been dealt with in the appropriate manner. Barnwell and the jurymen said that that was irrelevant. A murder had been committed and the accused should stand trial. And while they're on the subject, they should come before the common law courts, not church courts. So that's 25 men standing up to the might of the church. Wow. Barnwell and the jurymen were brought up before the Privy Council and the justices of the realm and advised, strongly advised, to reconsider their verdict. Those powerful men mocked and laughed at the jurymen and their witnesses and tried to discredit them. Oh my goodness. Faced with this intimidation, the jurymen said, No, Hun was murdered by Horsey, Spaulding and Joseph. He did not commit suicide. Wow! (laughs) They stuck to their guns. That's brave or stupid. I'm not sure which one yet. (laughs) I'll tell you at the end of the story. (laughs) I'm going with Brave because this Brave stand made all the difference to Hun's family. Because quite apart from the shame of a family member killing themselves, people who committed suicide were not buried on consecrated ground. No. And the church forbade prayers for them. Their bodies were sometimes dragged naked through the streets, buried at lonely crossroads, and sometimes with a metal stake was hammered through their hearts, with the top of the stake standing up from the ground once the grave was filled as a deterrent to others. Oh, can you imagine the traffic now if you tried to bury somebody at a crossroads? <laughs> hold on, hold on. We're just closing this intersection. We'll put in a body. In about 10 years, we'll have a sinkhole and nobody will know why. <laughs> well, all the roads around here seem to be closed anyway, so perhaps that's what they're doing. <laughs> because Barnwell stood his ground, Hun would be allowed a Christian burial, which really, after all his corpse had been through, must have been a huge relief to his relatives. Yes. Henry was then called upon to make a decree. His decision, and I, you know, I thought Henry did all right last time. 
Nah, not now. Oh. His decision was that the three men would be tried in the court of the King's Bench, but he instructed the Attorney General to accept their pleas of not guilty. Oh, so they're not tried, actually, at all. Well, they're tried, but then the King says, yep, they're not guilty. The king could give licenses for court cases to proceed, but not to judgment. That would require further permission. He's, I think he's way over his oh, jurisdiction here. Okay. The three men walked free. Uh, that seems to be the worst possible outcome, really. It just screams corruption, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And needless to say, this did not go down well with the public. No. They had seen how a corrupt church had stood together to protect themselves. And how much would this be remembered when, a few years later, the Reformation sought to bring down people like Fitzjames? Except that Henry was complicit in that. You're not getting rid of the ultimate authority. No. Hmm. And he wasn't finished. Dean Collett, who we will talk about in later series, complained that from 1511, the bishop persecuted him and did everything he could to stop Collett's church reforms. Hmm. But... You know, Bishop Fitzjames was a man of high character and greatly respected. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was an awful person. Yes, he was. But if Richard Barnwell and his 24 jurymen don't have a blue plaque, they damn well should, I think. I might even start to campaign to have them, to get a blue plaque for them. Blue plaques are put on walls where people yeah. live who have done something significant. I agree. And I think that Richard Barnwell is quite a hero. Yeah. <laughs> That poor guy. And that was the very horrific story of Richard Hunn. Oh. And his body. And now he's a ghost. Yeah. I bet you he's a ghost. Well, it is Halloween. It is Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. That one was good.